0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
1: AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair.
1: It's such an honor to present this next award.
2: And here are the nominees. And...
0: I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of vanityfair.com. And I'm here, with my Thanksgiving pal, our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Happy Thanksgiving week, Katie Rich. And joining us once again, our special correspondent, our man in Los Angeles, Anthony Presenkan. Hello. Thank you for coming back.
2: I'm so thankful to be here.
0: Oh, uh, I really. <laughs> I think this is a holdover from a previous Vanity Fair era, but we did used to have like our man in Karachi, our man in London, our man in Singapore. And I would like to bring that back. Um, yes. <laughs> I can be our man in North Carolina anytime we need us. Um, So, it is Thanksgiving week, as we said. Um, We have a Thanksgiving gift for me and Joanna, maybe for all of you. Uh, I talked to Armando Iannucci, the co-writer and director of The Personal History of David Copperfield, which Joanna and I talked about this week. Both of us adore. It was a delightful conversation. Um, We'll also be talking about a couple of things that we think that you should watch over the Thanksgiving holiday but first, uh, we have brought in Anthony and Joanna, our Star Wars world power team, uh, specifically because I wanted you guys to talk about a piece that you wrote last week about kind of the disturbance in the force of the Star Wars fandom around The Mandalorian and specifically uh, Gina Carano's role on the current season. Uh, I have I am one episode into the new season of The Mandalorian, and I don't know that we're going to spoil too much going on because the real story is what's going on. Outside of it, right? Like the show itself is itself and then the the real drama is kind of on Twitter, right? There's a lot of
2: drama happening within the show. There's a lot of drama happening on Twitter. There's a lot of drama happening everywhere. Well maybe Yoda
0: got canceled for genocide. I forgot about that part. Yeah. Of that. So I guess that was a but, uh, in But it the came show. back.
2: It came back. The trial at the Hague was postponed. <laughs> <laughs> Joanna and I are really deep into this. We're you could say we are your man in the galaxy far, far away.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Collecting you guys are like two kids in a trench coat so... Stacked on
3: top of the show to make one man <laughs> um, Anthony you want you want to give the the rundown of the state of affairs and in, in the fandom I mean l- let's just say really quickly the Star Wars fandom nothing the Star Wars fandom loves more. Than to be divided around something. They love this, being messy.
2: They love yeah. being messy almost <laughs> as much as Baby Yoda loves blue macaroons. <laughs>
3: they're they're very messy. But this is a more like personal and even, or not more. I'll just say this is a very personal for some uh, issue. It's not a question of like oh, I think the last Jedi was great. I think it's uh, not. Yeah, you're right. You know you're right. what I mean?
2: It's, this is uh, yeah. I should apologize for that. I no 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 no. You have no, nothing to apologize for. I'm uh, just
3: saying like it's it's a me- it's always a messy time in Star Wars. This is a very personal and messy time in Star Wars. So, Anthony, what's what's going yeah,
2: on? Yeah, there are people uh, who have very serious and heartfelt concerns, and I don't mean to minimize that. Um, but there are also people who are making drama about things that are somewhat ridiculous. And so sometimes those things get merged, and there just seems to be a lot of noise and, and static. And I think it's due to the fact that the show is ultra popular. I mean, it's got you know global appeal and, and, and millions of people watching it, and not a lot to discuss before or after the episode so they're you know some people are, are digging the, digging the show and they they groove on the memes and the interesting lore that's revealed and others uh, you know they're, they're taking issue with some elements of the storytelling they're uh, internalizing and personalizing some of it some of the behavior of the actors is coming into play <laughs> uh, and uh, and that becomes the news because everything else is Pretty much locked down, so what we have is the show's back. Mando and Child are on the run from bounty hunters, and uh, he has to deliver this uh, sweet little baby Yoda to somebody who knows how to take care of it. And in the meantime, you've got you know people online who are concerned that Baby Yoda eating the f- the last eggs of Frog Lady <laughs> is a a type of extermination that's being made fun of. You have other people who are saying. I think a little more seriously that it reminds them of like fertilization issues and and uh, and reproductive issues and and you know took issue with that. Uh, then you have Gina Carano, uh, who plays Cardoon, this tough mercenary, you know, have blaster, will travel, roaming the galaxy. Who, Joanna, here's where I'll kick it back to you. Like she really connected with a lot of fans and uh, fans who didn't always see themselves represented in Star Wars. And then things took a turn.
3: Yeah, you know, what I will say is that there, you know, over the summer, there were some things on on Gina Carano's social media, her Twitter, that, you know, was perceived as unsupportive of the Black Lives Matter movement based on like certain, you know, memes she was liking, anti-protest memes she was liking and stuff like that. Some fans requested that she put her pronouns, her preferred pronouns in her Twitter bio. Some asked nicely, some were, you know, absolutely awful about it uh carano was resistant carano made light of it which is something you know that perhaps she didn't understand how serious this was to some people and uh eventually maybe seemed to get it but you know the hurt in the in the trans community the trans ally community and especially like of the you know trans star wars fans that we talked to The character of Cara Dune, because of Gina Carano's, like, imposing physique was someone that they just, like, really, you know, Gina Carano's not trans, the character's not trans, but it's someone that they really, like, sort of latched on to as, like, a uniquely strong, tall, broad-shouldered woman in Hollywood. Like, you don't see a body like Gina Carano's in our mainstream entertainment and that was something that they really really latched on to and so the feelings were just very heightened around that and and really injured and then uh, crying jo- Joanna, yeah. you yeah. might I jump yeah. in
2: just for a second of course just to, just to note that the that that's something that Gina herself pointed out to us in an interview last season that she yeah. she knows she's a big strong woman and that she was concerned when she was offered a part In Star Wars, what did she say to us? Like, oh, I thought it was going to be for like an alien or a a Wookiee or something, you know? Uh, uh, Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah.
3: That she thought she was going to be in like a suit of some kind. And she was thrilled to know that. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. And that she I think she sort of embraced that element of representation for women as well, that they don't all look like Felicity Jones in the galaxy, that they can, you know, have different body types. And that was considered a pretty big deal, I think, for a lot of folks.
3: Yeah. And then, you know, the conversation expanded beyond, um, not that it was just contained to the trans community at the time, but it expanded even more so when Corona uh, started posting opinions about the election, opinions about COVID, very right wing or maybe, I mean, I feel comfortable saying in some cases, conspiratorial sort of language. Yeah. Mocking um,
2: mask wearing, yeah, you know, yeah. sort of, de- you know, science denialism. But election some... denying a little bit. So, you know, it's yeah. it's
3: uh, that that became tough, too. And I think, uh, you know, and then she announced that she was going to go to Parlour which is this like sort of right wing, friendly social media spot. Um, but what we observed is that she's kind of she's posting the same thing on Parlour that she posts on Twitter. There's really no difference. She might have uh, her interactions might be different, but what her content is no different.
2: And Parlour tolerates a lot of conspiracy and yeah. bigotry that Twitter for all of its myriad flaws does not. And so I think when she said, "Hey, follow me on Parlor," that was just sort of like throwing down the gauntlet.
0: Can I ask a like big big picture question for as someone who is like less engaged with fandoms, I think either of you guys are? Like I think for me as someone who watches The Mandalorian kind of in and out and, like, is aware of Star Wars and not that invested in it. I don't feel super strongly about what Gina Carano or other people do, but I understand that for a lot of people that's such a huge part of it. And I think you guys are talking about how, like, you know, that's a, it's a weird time in the Star Wars fandom. Like, on, the, on a really general level, why is it with Star Wars and some other franchises in particular, does it, like, does what someone says on parlor become so important as opposed to other movies where people don't really invest in what the other people are doing? Or is it because specifically of what Gina Carano is saying that makes it such a big deal? But I I'm, mean, I think that's part of it, but
3: also Anthony gave me like, the best answer about this the other day when we were talking about this. It involves Jungian psychology. <laughs> Anthony, what's your answer for why people latch onto Star <laughs> Wars in this way?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's all about I mean, you have to remind me what my good answer was. Now I'm like, shoot, <laughs> shoot
0: what no, was no, the answer? You were, were explaining Jungian psychology to me, Anthony. The, the property of Star
3: Wars, in you know, as it exists in the first place, as George Lucas ex- invented it, is a basic myth structure with just character archetypes yeah. and like archetypes and,
2: more than individual like yeah. unique character. Like the characters are unique, but they're they, they fit a kind of. Uh, Template that people around the globe, uh, across cultures and languages, sort of share. It's just a human yeah. story about journey and discovery, and and uh, and 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 being brave and, and standing with your friends, your tribe, your your allies, and uh, yeah. So I do think it like I think it people. We talk about representation and seeing yourself in a character. At once, it allows you to imagine yourself. As different people, as braver people, maybe as more adventurous people, but also you see yourself. Like I think almost everyone can see themselves in like both Princess Leia, Luke Skywalker, Han Solo. Like you can picture yourself as somebody young and craving adventure. Uh, That's like so general that it it attracts the imagination and the hearts and the and the affection of countless people. And so when you have somebody who represents that character doing something that um, breaks that heart. It's, yeah, because so uh, because Star Wars
0: because Star Wars has made so much more of an effort toward representation than like a lot of other franchises. Like people have that attachment built in, and therefore have more writing on the people who are in it than kind they of. would. for I like mean, it, yeah. it has
2: now. It's trying, but I it's think trying, yeah, yeah, you know. But 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 in the past, I don't think uh, anybody could say. It was great on representation when they're <laughs> well, but like, you know. wasn't
0: like Princess Leia groundbreaking in her own way for her time? Like, like they've like they've made their steps and like have tried to improve over the years. Whereas like, there's plenty of other pop culture that people are invested in that doesn't really try at all.
2: Certainly of its time, yeah, for sure. And you know, and Lando Calrissian, you know, I don't yeah. mean to dismiss his representation, but it's like you know, he's. Uh, he was alone out there, you know, there were perhaps, yeah. uh, you know.
3: I think, yeah, I think Star Wars is unique beyond, I, I'm trying, like, you know, beyond even, like, Harry Potter, or Lord of the Rings, or whatever, in that, like, honestly, it's not very sophisticated, but there are extremely sophisticated ways in which people interact with it, because it leaves so much space for you to flood it with, like, interpretation and narration and all this sort of stuff, and identity, and all this stuff, like... The original Star Wars is so basic, and, and that's mm-hmm. great. I love it. That's not a knock on it, but I think it just does open the door for people to, you know, work themselves into the narrative the way where they see spaces in the narrative, and it makes their ownership, plus this is a fandom, one of the longest fandoms of this magnitude that we have in pop culture, you know what I mean? Like Harry Potter's a more recent fandom, Lord of the Rings like, that's a nerdier fandom and stuff like that. Star Wars is is just, is bigger, more mainstream. You know, Game of Thrones was like a more of a flash of a pan fandom, but this is like, this is, this is it, you know? This has been so long. And so, and as Anthony, Anthony's point about like the fact that like the Mandalorian, there's not much to talk about week to week. And so we keep finding things and not to say that like this Gina Carano thing wouldn't be a thing if, if that weren't the case, because I think definitely people do care a lot about you know, the people that they decide to
2: hero worship,
3: what they say.
2: But she's but... not out doing interviews explaining herself, you know? Right, yeah. And not They're that not she, doing not, any
3: press, yeah. Not, exactly. not
2: that she could necessarily defend any of this, but I think, you know, if you're addressing it or apart from the provocative social media posts, then sometimes that begins to. You're actually hearing the other side a little bit too by taking questions and interacting with the real world. I think so much of our communication on social media is it it separates us a little you know how like sometimes an email feels really blunt (laughs) when it's not intended to be it's just a short reply but it feels rude I think sometimes rudeness is magnified on social media and I think that's one of the things Joanna I think we uh, you correct me if I'm wrong on this like we agree the divide between Gina and the fans it grew gradually and it
3: grew gradually but like But kind of sharply, honestly, if you go back, I I went like way on a forensic deep dive of her social media. And I went back to July when you get by the time you get to July, there is nothing political on there. There's not like it's not on there. She's always been like a religious, you know, conservative person. But like that, this was not she was just like. Excited about the Mandalorian, out there supporting fans that she saw out there, just re- supporting people in general. It was just like, uh, just a font of positivity. And then it just sort of it got, you know, we've been in lockdown and pandemic. It's 2020. Like things got things got bad, and like unfortunately, like the the gulf between Gina Carano and some of her fans now is so wide. I don't I don't know what can be done, but I wish something could be done for her to understand the way in which her social media impacts the fandom uh, not just the like people who are being mean to her cuz there are people mm-hmm. being mean to her but the actual like fans who love her and then you know it's so messy and so sad because Cara Dune meant so much to a lot of people um she's not a main character of the Mandalorian she's in one episode uh last week i don't know how much more she'll be in this season but you know in terms of people wondering whether or not they wanted to watch the Mandalorian like she's not in it much overall so that's can i ask you guys
0: something. another giant question sure. should people should actors be on twitter anymore no
2: no well this was another thing that that creates a another uh a dimension to this which is a lot of star wars actors are on twitter are on facebook are on instagram and they're pretty outspoken about politics but from the left like almost all of them from john boyega to mark hamill even Harrison Ford recording, a, you know, he's not on Twitter. <laughs> Can you imagine?
1: Oh, my God.
0: <laughs> if there's anything in this world, Harrison Ford does not have patience for his Twitter. Yeah.
1: Uh, but, like, but like uh, Adam Driver's but,
0: not on Twitter. Oscar Isaac's not on Twitter. Like, like I feel like a lot of them have, have consciously no. backed away.
2: Yeah. I mean, Harrison Ford recorded a Biden ad. So you can't really say to Gina Carano, like, you can't express your views because then you'd have to tell sure. everybody not to express their views. It's just when your views cross over into something hurtful and harmful, that becomes a pretty intense question for a large company. Like, how do you deal with that? And I think it becomes less of a question if the person is saying something that's like overtly provocative or offensive or bigoted or uses a slur or something I'm thinking like Roseanne and, you know, some of the hateful things she said, Uh, even, you know, maybe Kathy Griffin posing with that severed head, you know, that's the kind of thing that gets you bounced from your, your CNN gig. But with Gina, uh, Joanna, you can, again, jump in and correct me if you think I'm wrong. Like, I think when I say, like, the thing built gradually, like, it was like, it wasn't like an immediate attack. It was like liking a couple of awful things, and then people calling you out on that, and then some people being ruder than others, and then Gina getting her back up. I mean, she's an MMA fighter, and I think, you know, when somebody throws a punch at you, if you're trained in that way, you throw a punch back and then it like escalated. I think there was like and as Joanna said it it, it, yeah. was, it was a pretty sharp escalation and then yeah. very little back there's very little um, uh reconciliation I guess you'd say. Uh but that that that's sort of the uh the tragic thing about it is that it was it affected people who sort of connected with her the most. But yeah, I don't know, should anybody be on Twitter? I really I really <laughs> grapple with that myself. Yeah. Um partly yeah. because it's it's just like uh I I sometimes feel like our news. I used to go to I used to go to websites and homepages of trusted news outlets, and now I get a lot of my news from trending topics. And uh, yeah, I don't know if that's good. I don't I don't know.
3: I feel like celebrities should be on Twitter. It sounds like a stupid statement to say if they know how to use it. I'm gonna I'm gonna say I'm gonna throw out a name, and you're gonna tell me whether or not you think they know how to use social media. Ryan Reynolds. Oh. There's nothing, yeah, I think so, right? Really personal on there. It's just sort of like him being funny improv. It's brand building. Guy.
0: It's him yeah, being yes. his personality that he exactly. presents in television and movies, and yeah. like that weird cell phone ad. Yeah, I think. No, I think that's right. And I think about like. Like, I assume that a lot of the cast on The Mandalorian got social media training to some degree. Like, I don't know if Gina Carano did, but, like, I think that's a huge part of being part of a franchise now. And I think this shows you why that happens is, like, just to know how to speak the language and how to, if you set a foot wrong, like, what to do to get yourself out of it. Like, you, just to not damage the brand like it's all like part of the the system that you're you've been cast in
2: Ooh, that's a good story what does social media training for a celebrity look like
0: oh yeah you know I mean, because
2: on one hand you, you know i think it's like i think it's drilled into a lot of these actors to not reveal spoilers i don't yeah. know i don't know how much training they get in you know here's how to express yourself or how to express yourself without doing damage to your argument um
0: i would hope they get it if not they should hire you guys one
3: thing that yeah. that I think is interesting in the we don't know how this is you know uh, impacting or will impact, um, Mandalorian season three, etc. But one thing that I think is interesting, and I feel comfortable mentioning it because Gina herself sort of you know laid it out there. But she said that Pedro, as in Pedro Pascal, had talked to her about some of her comments about the trans community, or you know some of her jokes, mm-hmm. if you want to put it that way, um, and that she felt like she understood. Now she continue to do do something after that that showed that maybe she didn't like fully understand but something that i found out in our reporting is that peter pascal has a as a non-binary sibling and so like this is a personal thing for her direct co-star as well and so you know that can only make everything just more personal in general and so it's just it's very complicated it's very messy it's very sad because, like, The Mandalorian is something that, like, once again, I don't think it's that deep. I think you find deep themes in there, but I don't think that it's that deep. It comes at the end of the year for the last two years and a time where I think we felt like we really needed Baby Yoda yeah. <laughs> memes to, like, get us to the goal line of the year. Mm-hmm. And so it's 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 sad to me that this thing that is so hurtful to so many has become entangled in this thing that, that was... Intended to bring joy to so many,
2: you know, it's I think it's still the show still brings joy people get excited and like, you know, um, but like it's like you say, uh, it is fairly simple storytelling, um, but the audience brings the depth. We bring our own experience and our own sentiment to it. And uh, and that's sometimes what leads to these deep hurts as well.
0: Um, Joanna, I wanted to ask you separately about a separate fandom, but um, one that I kind of like got a crash course <laughs> in last week with the Supernatural finale. Um, yeah, which I never watched, but like kind of became very aware of as people got really mad about the finale. Um, and as we all know, like people get mad about TV finales; that's a common thing. But it really made me think a lot about like what fandoms think they are owed by the shows that they watch, and the Supernatural fandom seemed really invested in this queer storyline that had been kind of, like, hinted at for a long time and then, like, sort of explicitly confirmed and then completely dropped in the finale. Um, I mean, you also did a dive in Supernatural. Did, Did you learn anything from looking into this one fandom from your knowledge of all the other ones?
3: Well, not to be, like, on tragedy beat or whatever, but I think what happened with Supernatural is a tragedy because what happened is they were two episodes away From finishing one of the longest-running TV shows in American history, yeah, um, I think that the official designation they have is longest-running genre American TV show, right? Because if it's (laughs) if it's not American, it's Doctor Who, and if it's not genre, it's like Gunsmoke. So like, but it's been on
0: Westerns is a genre anyway, (laughs) or Grey's Anatomy.
3: I don't know. Grey's Anatomy debuted the same time and it's still going. So, um. But they were two episodes away and then uh, COVID shut the production down. And not only did COVID shut the production down two episodes away from the finale, but restrictions, budgetary constraints, blah, blah, blah. They had to rework the final two episodes, which in the tradition of big, long running TV show finales was planning to bring back like every, I've, you know, I have heard subsequent interviews um, since I wrote a piece about it last week, They, you know, that they had planned back to to bring back everyone. There was all this stuff they were going to do and they just had to strip. Strip it back, strip it back, strip it back. And they finally filmed it up in, I think they filmed in Vancouver, up in Vancouver. with a very
0: Vancouver vibe. Yeah,
3: with with like the core, core, core cast. And in the finale proper, it's like the two leads and one guest star, and that's pretty much it, and a dog. And so as a result, the finale, no matter how you paint it, is like, even if leaving aside this, the queer thing that we're going to talk about in a second, that finale is a weird episode of television because it's just sort of like, what do we do with these two guys? And so it's like a lot of driving montage and like getting ready for breakfast montage and people obviously not being in the same room montage. And it's just like, it's, it's, it's funky. It's really funky. And it's sad because like, (laughs) <laughs> this fandom has been waiting forever for this finale. I saw I saw a TikTok the other day of like someone was doing a joke about like all the you know Game of Thrones creators made the best worst finale ever, and then Supernatural creators walk in and they're like, "Hold my beer." I was like, "That's not fair." Game yeah. of Thrones wasn't shut down due to COVID, um, so I feel I feel bad about what happened with Supernatural. But what what is missing and what might not have been there even if COVID hadn't been uh, a factor is. A confirmation, a, a consummation, whatever you want to call it, of this long burning in the fandom mind, uh, for sure, will they, won't they, between two of the male leads on the show, not the male leads who are brothers. Uh, that though, part
0: really confused me as I became aware of this. Some so of like that it's a show too. of brothers, right? <laughs> anyway, I was relieved. I was relieved to hear that.
3: <laughs> There's a character. Called uh, Castiel, played by Misha Collins, who who joined the show several seasons in, but became like a beloved fan favorite, and a lot of people thought that Castiel and Dean, played by Jensen Echols, yes, this is an award season podcast, um, <laughs> were um, were meant to, you know, were meant to be together. And what's interesting about the supernatural fandom. Uh, is that it dates back to, like, the early days of Tumblr. Like, Supernatural, because it's been on so long, is, like, came about at an unusual time for fandom when fan fiction and fan art were really getting off the ground in earnest. Mm -hmm. And also this idea of, like, Supernatural had most of its, or a lot of its run before queer storylines or gay sort of storylines were more centralized in genre fiction. They are, the things are, are not great but are getting better every day and so like, it's not wild to imagine now that two male leads on a genre CW show would be in a relationship together. You know what I mean? That happens Mm -hmm. on the Arrowverse. It happens, you know, but like, it did feel wild at least to like, you know, conservative TV execs or whomsoever back then and so, you get this idea of, like, uh, fandom—you and I have talked about this before, Katie, where, like, fans who are thirsty for representation, queer representation, will create these—not create out of nothing, but, like, you know, embellish these relationships to, you know, to, to try to create representation for themselves. Uh, Anthony, I'm sure you and I have talked about this before in terms of, like, John Boyega and Oscar Isaac's characters in Star mm-hmm. Wars, this happens with them, like, and— it's disappointing for those fans that those connections that they see that feel very meaningful to them don't feel as meaningful to the creators, um, mm-hmm. or, or and, that
2: the creators are afraid of them, right? You know, or, the, yeah. or that the owners of the uh, of the property, you know, the right. companies are maybe afraid, maybe even more afraid of them than
3: yeah. So, the, you know, the only the only last thing I'll say is that Supernatural, the Supernatural fandom and the Destiel thing actually came across my radar several years ago when people's when when the culture started to shift and people really start to push back on this idea of queer baiting, which is what they see, which is like teasing and hinting and all this sort of stuff at it without any intention of ever following through on it. And that is Can something. Can you give a good example of that? um
2: Does Dumbledore count?
3: I mean, Dumbledore kind of in in sort of like, what does it matter if he if J.K. Rowling yeah. claims he's gay, if he's not going to be, quote unquote, overtly gay in the prequel films or whatever. Um, I, I will I will say John Boyega and Oscar Isaac are forever like teasing that relationship at conventions and getting screams out of the audience in a way that I'm just sort of like, but, you know, that's not happening for your character. So, mm. uh, like, is it? Progressive to do that at a convention, or is it queer baiting? I'm not sure, uh, quite what the answer is, but I know that some people, uh, and I, I, uh, you know, I'm not the person to speak for the gay community, but I, I, I have read from a lot of fans and a lot of critics, uh, who are from the gay community who say, like, we don't want the tease if you're not going to give us the, the final product, you know? I think
2: it's really important for creators and companies to get on board with this because. It's. I think it's kind of ridiculous. And look, I, I don't speak for the you know LGBTQ plus community at all either. But like, I I have two little kids, and I think I'm much more afraid of them growing up and wondering why they don't see any same sex moms or dads in the entertainment they consume. You know why mm-hmm. they don't see any same sex couples. I think that's going to be a real question for uh, for kids as they get of this generation as they get older. Because my daughter, you know, she's 11. She knows gay couples and gay moms and, and gay dads and kids who have same-sex parents. And it's not a thing for her. It's not a problem for her. And a thinks of herself as a little ally. I'm very proud of her. And I, but I think, you know, they're going to watch TV and movies and, and wonder, well, why why is this part of our world, our society, not represented? I think it's going to look... I think creators are making these little baby steps. You know, you see, like... A guy talking about his boyfriend in an Avengers film or you see two background characters, two women uh, in Star Wars sharing an embrace and a kiss like that's just not enough. You know, no. it's just it's yeah. it's. I think they're trying to push that boundary. But I think there's this also, you know, and I think I think there's an understandable fear of uh, of the backlash that comes from the the people who are intolerant. Uh, they're very vocal and, and very hostile. But I don't think we should cater to them anymore. It's just And in the you case know,
0: of, of Star Wars movies, like more conservative countries or international audiences, which I think right, we, it yeah. may be even the bigger fear.
2: You know, but I think you, you look at how entertainment can change people's perspectives on things. And uh, you feel like, you know, people grieve when an actor dies because they connect with that person and they connect with their characters and they feel like they know them. And I think once you feel like you know somebody, maybe the people you actually know in real life, will feel a little more comfortable coming out because you've become a little more accepting and tolerant. Anyway, that's Uh, my Soapbox.
0: (laughs) Can I I use this to pivot to the next movie we wanted to talk about? Absolutely. Happiest Season. It's the queer Christmas (laughs) rom-com that Hollywood was afraid to make until 2020.
3: (laughs) It's true. It's
0: true. I mean, I don't think it's something... I I guess a kid could watch it, like a teenager could watch Happy Season. I don't know what it would be rated. It's not like a kid's movie, but I think it's not like so racy that you wouldn't want to like have a kid who would want to watch love actually watch it but it is like watching happiest season does feel like after talking about all this such a nice like oh here we go like here is just a nice holiday rom-com about two women in a relationship and it's like sort of about the coming out process which i know like some like there's an argument that like we're over coming out movies but it's just so lovely joanna did you enjoy happy season as much as i did oh um <laughs> <laughs> no oh no
3: oh <laughs> uh, maybe we should have talked about this beforehand I did not uh, oh no well happy a season but I love that it exists does that make sense
0: <laughs> yeah that's totally fair <laughs> straight mean, people, not- medi-
3: people have made mediocre Christmas movies for eons so <laughs> let, let the gays do it too I'm yeah. not
0: saying it's a perfect movie but I, I think it, it like if you want to slot it in with the like every other home for the holidays movie I've ever seen like it fits right on the shelf with it it's not going to break the format except that it is about two women
3: you know what i mean yeah i guess i mean so when you say home for the holidays movies i think of family stone is one right recent example yeah uh home for the holidays being a thanksgiving movie but still i think counts yeah um
0: are there other ones that that come to mind for you I mean, the Home Alone movies are kind of the opposite of it, but like, like big crowded family in a house, or like, yeah, you know, like the the um Sleepless in Seattle family Christmas scenes, like just like scenes of family gatherings at holidays, like maybe more than just like an entire maybe. genre of it, or like there's probably a billion Netflix movies that I haven't seen that fit this too.
3: Maybe I'm like maybe I've been away from my family too long in this 2020 year of quarantine, <laughs> but. The family season, and happy and, season, and it's sort of the point, so, you know, I, please don't think I missed the point, is so toxic that <laughs> I just have a real problem watching that as, and like, because Family Stone is toxic, like, Family Stone's not a great movie, but it's a movie that I can think of that feels close in terms of, like, a tox, a slightly toxic family that needs to work through its own issues before it, like, is able to embrace a, an outsider coming in, right, sort sure. of thing. Um, but that family is kind of toxic in a fun way. <laughs> and yeah. this family is so toxic. I, I, it, it goes so deep. I don't even know what to do with it. That being said, I loved Aubrey Plaza in this movie. Uh, Dan Levy is just doing Dan Levy, and that's really fun. Allison Brie, unfortunately, is wrapped up in this toxicity and playing a character that I don't understand how anyone could actually be that mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so.
0: That's that's sort of where I am. With I movie. think I think the reason I like appreciated the the toxicity of the family is obviously there, but like it made it so that it's not one of those movies where it's like here's all these crazy misunderstandings that make it so we have a plot. Like there is like shit to work through and people kind of like behaving badly for reasons that like go back a while. It didn't feel like it was insulting my intelligence of like why things were happening to them, which like from my experience of watching like handfuls of Hallmark Christmas movies, like some of that happens. True, like it, true, it felt true. like there was yeah. like um a reality to it. And like, you know, at a certain point like it gets a little ridiculous, which is also, I think, part of it. Like you have to keep all these people in the house kind of like squabbling back and forth with each other and like have a reason for Dan Levy to show and be like, I am the straight ex-boyfriend, which, like, I think mostly doesn't last that long. But I don't like it, like, the warm, fuzzy vibe of, like, being in a room full of your family um, is something that I think, like, we might not all get this year. And there was some, like, simulacrum of it. Also, like, I think Kristen Stewart's really good in it. I don't know where you landed on her. I don't think it's, like, She's her good. best role. Yeah. But, like, I just like her as this, like, you yeah. know, v- voice of reason In the middle of all of this chaos and like like she has like a real person vibe was like, like you were saying, like Alison Brie's villain is like a little more out there.
3: It's tough to me because Mackenzie Davis is playing a character that I find so unreasonable that I... uh, that you're like you're just, I was just I was, I was rooting for it all to end differently to be honest with you so like um, <laughs> yeah I've
0: heard I've heard that <laughs> argument as well but
3: I was pulling for Kristen Stewart the whole way that's true so yeah. you know but mostly it's like it's like get out but for like gay <laughs> people <laughs> like, Get
2: out <laughs>
0: of there. This uh, family is not going to treat you right. <laughs> no,
3: get out. So, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's complicated, but it's it's interesting. I've seen a, a really big divide, actually. And it's not just along, like, gay and straight lines or anything like that, you know, um, of, of responses to this movie. So, yeah. Um, I, I will be interested to see how how it plays with the wider audience. But like I said, I'm glad it exists. It is definitely more thoughtful than a lot of the holiday pablum that we are served on other streaming platforms. <laughs> um, so I'll give it that for sure. And I hope more things like uh, this exist in general. So,
0: Well, so before we get to me talking to Romano Inucci about David Copperfield, which I think we would all say to see, um, let's recommend something else that people should watch over their Thanksgivings, however they may be spending it. Um, Anthony, do you want to go first? Do you want to throw out something you think people should watch or catch up with?
2: Um, I'm going to recommend my all-time favorite movie, and... I don't know. I don't know if anybody ever watches it. I recommend it all the time, (laughs) but it's a, it's a movie from, I believe it's 1990. It's called Avalon. It's directed by Barry Levinson and it stars like a teeny tiny baby, Elijah Wood and Armin Mueller Stahl, who is his grandfather. And I think it's a beautiful family story. It's about Eastern European Jewish immigrants who come to America in the early part of the last century and they try to set up a new life for themselves, this group of brothers, it spans decades. And it's about a, a lot of different vignettes that turn up in this, uh, in this movie. So it doesn't have like one, like sort of through line plot. It's just a snapshot of an American family or family that became American. And uh, I love the relationship between the boy and his grandfather. It's touches uh, my heart because I have that, with my, uh, my late grandfather, I love, I love hearing stories of the past and families, and, and it has that. It's got a couple of scenes at Thanksgiving, and the politics of when you cut the turkey and when you wait <laughs> for the late-arriving <laughs> relative. I think it's just a beautiful film. It's my, like I said, it's my favorite movie of all time. And so uh, if you want a good Thanksgiving film, I think, uh, I think you could give it a try.
3: I've never seen it, and now I'm definitely going to watch it because of this glowing recommendation.
2: I watch it at least once a year, and Aww. I am a sobbing mess by the f- final scene. So
0: <laughs> we are sweet. all in desperate need of a good cry at yeah. this point, I think. like, some, mm-hmm. Get some catharsis that way. Um, Joanna, what did you want to throw out?
3: I'm going to throw out actually something we're going to cover uh, in depth on another Vanity Fair podcast. Richard and I are gonna do two episodes on the HBO Max series, The Flight Attendant. And I'm just here <laughs> to tell you it is a good time. Uh they are dropping three ep- the first three episodes on the 26th. That's Thanksgiving proper, isn't it? So, like let's say you have you you like you don't want to go infect anyone this Thanksgiving and you're just gonna chill at home. That's fine. Why don't you, like, trot the globe with Kelly Cuoco on the flight attendant? So, basically, this is, like, a... It's, a, like, fun, fizzy is a word that I've heard a lot to describe it. Murder mystery... Six episode uh, adventure where Kelly Cuoco plays a flight attendant who has a one night stand in Bangkok um, with a, a passenger played by Michael Hussman, who played I always mispronounce his name. So I I apologize to every Dutch listener, but um, who played Dario Naharis on Game of Thrones and they have a one night stand and she wakes up. Uh, in bed this all happens right at the beginning so it's not a uh, spoiler wakes up in bed Uh, he's dead she's covered in blood and she has to like figure out what to do next and it's one of those fun shows where like each episode ends on a cliffhanger but not in a way that makes you mad in a way that you're like dun, 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 what's gonna happen next oh my gosh <laughs> um and uh zoja mamet plays her best friend and her uh also her lawyer Rosie Perez is one of her like her fellow flight attendants and Michelle Gomez, who people might know from Chilly Adventures of Sabrina or Doctor Who or Green Wing. She's just this like gonzo Scottish actress and she's playing like sort of the antagonist, the sort of cat to Kelly Cuoco's mouse. And uh, and it's great. And Kelly Cuoco is is uh, who, if you're listening and didn't know, is one of the richest people on the planet because of the Big Bang Theory. Um I was not a Big Bang Theory fan. I didn't watch the show. I didn't and I didn't watch her uncharmed before that. I wasn't really a Kaley Cuoco stan or anything like that. But she took her Big Bang Theory money. She funded this Harley Quinn animated series that's on HBO Max as well. That is incredible, and she voices Harley Quinn, and it is so fun and so good. So you should watch that too. By the way, um, and then she took her money. I
2: co-signed that, but don't watch it with the kids.
3: <laughs> no, not with the kids. This is not for kids.
2: <laughs> Super <laughs> art. I was like, oh, yeah, this looks so good. I wonder if the kids. Oh no, no, oh no 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 no, 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 no,
3: no. So she's doing that, and then she's and then she's funded this. She optioned the book. Like it's based on a book. It's a very Reese Witherspoon esque approach to this, right? She op- She found a book. She optioned it. She's starring in it. Blah blah. blah. And I'm just like yes take your big bang theory money this is like what like kristen stewart and rob pattinson did with our twilight money or or steven yun did with his walking dead money like take your money and go do like fun great stuff for us so i'm eagerly going to follow kelly cuoco's money to wherever it goes next uh because she's got good taste
0: it's good taste so far so i'm a big fan uh that's really—I do want to watch The Flight Attendant. It's, like, one of the things I'm, like, saving for myself. Uh, as a nice president, uh, I will probably be watching The Crown, which I feel like we have talked about in uh, intense detail. But I kind of wanted to throw back to something we talked about a few months ago, but uh, I had not thought about in a while. But if you didn't watch what the Constitution means to me before the election, yeah. watch it now that the election is over. I feel like it's got a nice—like, it is obviously a Trump-era thing from the way that it's presented, but I don't think it's limited to it. And I think it— will make you think about governance and our country and if you were feeling maybe better about our country than you were a month ago uh, it might be a a good time to get into it Um, and also the feeling of being in a theater full of people like I would love to watch American Utopia again which we also talked about Um, I was looking to see uh, a couple years ago there there was a Rockettes uh, Radio City Christmas Spectacular on Netflix and it's no longer there uh, which is what I was going to recommend but uh, you can get some other live theater that's a little bit less explicitly Christmassy
3: Yeah, it's um, (laughs) so I've I've been drafted to judge this... competition, this California competition uh, among, like, high schoolers uh, and, it, and it is about the Constitution and I feel Whoa. I'm, I'm like I'm like qualified and unqualified for this, right? I'm on a team of other two other judges there's a bunch of different judges, but I'm on like a team of two others, they are extremely well qualified in all things Constitution and I think I'm well qualified to judge, like, execution, performance, like, all the sort of stuff that they're going to do, but I'm also like, should I re what the Constitution means to me <laughs> and, like, read my pocket constitution that that uh, Amazon sent me when that show dropped. Uh, yeah, it's it's fantastic. I loved watching it. that's a, that's a great idea for something to watch again post post election. So yeah, yeah and there's just like a lot of ton, tons of great stuff. Oh you can always go to vF.com to find our recommendations but there's a lot out there um, you know so you don't have to feel trapped with your family or lonely because you can't get to your family. You can all just bond over something
0: to watch. Yeah. There you go.
1: I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. And this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the
0: culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape. And we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited
3: to cover in the next few months?
2: There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the
1: jury is out.
0: I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene.
2: (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts.
0: You
3: really don't want to miss this.
2: Don't. Don't
3: miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs>
2: uh,
0: well, on that hopeful note, uh, now let's go listen to my interview with uh, one of those great things to watch. Uh, Armando Iannucci, the co-writer and director of The Personal History of David Copperfield. How's the, the new lockdown going for you guys there? Is it is it helping?
1: Uh, I'm getting lots of work done. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but I'm doing a shoot in about two weeks time
0: where is Uh, it that's avenue five starting back up right yeah
1: so it's just i mean it's not far from home but it's just frustrating because i can't come in i can't work with the writers i can't sit down with the actors and
0: yeah
1: everything is on zoom at the moment but uh you we were going to go into this bubble to rehearse and Mm -hmm. and all that it's just been it's all slightly uh, different
0: well, when you're done with your quarantine, you can go there pretty safely though, right? Like everyone will know that you're, that you're in the clear.
1: Yes. And we get regularly tested and, and all that. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. You know, we're, we're coming up on Thanksgiving here and everyone's like finally kind of realizing that they shouldn't get on airplanes. <laughs> no, I know. I know. Oh, I wouldn't mind being in Britain with a little bit smarter lockdown protocols, honestly.
1: You reckon? <laughs> <laughs> well, seems, it, seems yes. Safer. In the UK, it's. There are quite a lot of them and therefore it's got confusing. You know, there's sort of different ones in different areas. And no one quite can remember. And they're all highly technical. They're all, you know, you can meet up with five people, but only outdoors except on the weekend when three (laughs) people can come into your house as long as one of them is married to you. (laughs) Knocks first like a vampire. And people don't. People just go. I I have no idea if I'm breaking the law now. I just don't know what I'm. Yeah,
0: that's true. That's true. We have no laws, so there's no there's no laws to break. Yes. Um, Okay. To talk about David Copperfield. So I saw this film in October um, or I saw this film at the Toronto Film Festival last year, which now feels like many years ago. Um, And it was just it was so lovely and so just the exactly the right tone I wanted then. And then watching it again now, it felt the same way, but but different because things have changed so much since then. And it's a long road between premiering a movie at a film festival and then, you know, over a year later talking about it. Have you noticed a change in how people have responded to it as the world has kind of spun off its axis since then?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, fortunately, it's the sort of film that people have been enjoying when they've been in lockdown it's a sort of because it celebrates community and friendship Mm -hmm. and and it's funny and 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 actually it's for for all ages so you know families can watch it and so on so I've been getting a lot of feedback of people who've found it kind of something that just takes them for two hours away from what's happening now and into something a little bit kind of more uplifting you know I wanted to make something that actually was positive and and I'd hope at the end of it.
0: Yeah. So you you had said that it was when you were making Death of Stalin that you thought that this would be the next project you were doing. And you know, obviously yeah. that movie, the movie's very funny but very dark. Does that affect your mood when you're doing something like that? Do you find your yourself in a darker no, I did, mood? I
1: mean it didn't feel, I mean, we, Death of Stalin, I mean, it was a, a comedy, even though it was a comedy involving horrific things. It affected my mood doing the research, I suppose, mm. going over to Moscow and you know, reading around the subject, but then speaking to people who, you know, grew up under Stalin and who told us, you know, it was such a common occurrence to be get the knock on the door in the middle of the night and be just be dragged out off to Siberia, that people would go to bed wearing lots of layers of clothes on so that if they were taken out, they'd have warm clothes with them. You know, bags would always be packed by the doorway so you could grab that on your way out. And so, So that was sort of upsetting. I mean, the cast and the Death Star were a great bunch of people and, you know, Michael Palin and, you know, all these people. So it was actually a, an enjoyable film to make um, and I'm glad I made it and, and I'm glad we were able to do something that showed you what happens when, you know, when democracy is non-existent and when a tyrant is in charge and, and, and everyone wants to just not be the one to disagree with him in case something bad happens, which, you know, one still sees to this day.
0: Can't imagine what that's relevant to now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I know, because we made the death of Stalin before Donald Trump was even a candidate. In, yeah. yeah. But when it came out, people were saying, is this about Trump? And I said, well, no, I had no idea this was going to happen. But, you know, he was talking about fake news, whereas in the death of Stalin, people were talking about false narratives. hmm and just how this changed the facts and, you know.
0: So when you're wrapping up Death of Stalin, I think you said that you, you know, wanted, you asked everyone who worked in the movie, like, hey, come back and work with me. Is that like, a, like, does that impulse when you finish a play or a project where you want to just keep everybody together and hang out again? Is like, was that what that was? <laughs>
1: Death of Style was the first time I'd done a historical period piece. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was learning for the first time, the whole business of historical accuracy and, and not just, you know, it wasn't just, an, you know, we're trying to recreate another country. We're trying to recreate 1950s Moscow in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to try and get it as authentic as possible. So so that means you're working with costume and makeup and art department and DOPs and so on who have a specialist skill. So, I learned a lot making that film and it was when I'd made it, I thought I'd always at the back of my mind been thinking of David Copperfield and it was when I made Death of Stalin. And I thought, well, we've got the people here. We've got the, you know, we've got the team. So literally it was the last day of the shoot. I went around all the heads of the department said, Death of Stalin next. Do you want to <laughs> join? Um, and so we've got the same team, and including the composer, Chris Willis, who did a fantastic score on this and, and on David Copperfield. But Two films could not be more different in terms of tone, you know, yeah. uh, tone and um, viewing certificate. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. Yeah.
0: Is that what led to the the visual inventiveness of David Copperfield? Because you've got the challenge of the period dress and the and the hair and everything, but also just. There's so much that you're doing in telling the story. And like, because you stepped up on the technical level at Death of Stalin, where you're like, oh, okay, so we'll just have an audience in a theater and then put them in a field, and that's just going to work. Yeah. Well, it's
1: also to do with the inventiveness of Dickens. You Mm -hmm. know, if you read the book, it's so many adaptations are hung up on recounting the plot. And in fact, the plot is just there to hang all these amazing characters, these wonderful ideas, but his inventive language and imagery and so on, you know, and and I just felt inspired by that. And I thought, let's capture that spirit. He's a storyteller. And it's a book about storytelling. It's about someone growing up, not knowing quite why they fit in and and, and whether people take him seriously or not, and then realizing what he is, is a writer. And if he actually just writes, he sort of becomes himself. So it's all about, storytelling. So I I thought let's take that as an explicit theme and an explicit visual in in the film. Let's what you're watching is is a troupe of performers coming on and telling their story.
0: Yeah, and then you have it. You have the theatrical framing and then you have like a hand ridges inside the boat and then you have the, like the silent yeah. film sped up at a, Like you're using yeah. so many different devices. And do you, do you think about what your options are and then figure out where to work them in? How do those work their way into the Well, I, I
1: wanted very much to go for like the handmade, if we had special effects, not to do CGI mm-hmm. because, um, you know, I, I love a CGI movie as, as much as the next guy, but I don't think people are surprised by CGI anymore you know it's so common that it's no longer magical and I thought how do we get it magical again how do we get maybe a kid watching the film actually go ah I see what they did there Mm -hmm. and want to talk about it and I thought let's do it physically so you know a wall will just drop and there we are on the location you know another a room will blow away we're on the end of a cliff you know so we built the room on the end of a cliff you know and do do the physicality of it so it therefore feels real because I kind of also wanted the audience to feel at any point they could stand up and step into the film and and be part of it, that the people there mirrored them and it it didn't feel like we were watching people who are now all dead because it was 150 years ago, Yeah, actually we were alive.
0: And the, the devices affect the tone of the movie because the movie begins and it's so energetic and bright and the score is yeah. so big. And then I think it, it settles in a little bit and the scenes get yes. more intimate. So how do you, like, do you, is that part of the writing process where you're like, you know, that if if people are going to have like a sad scene, you can't have the wall disappear, like that you, exactly. you that in there. Exactly. And I also
1: saw it, you know, without being overt I wouldn't expect people to pick up on this, but in my head, I saw almost like it the film had four seasons. As he was growing up, there was a sort of, Kind of winter childhood, just all a bit brutal, and then a, you know, a, a spring as he kind of gets looked after, and a summer that he's looked after, and then the autumn when he grows up, and you know, it, and 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 I so tonally there were things that we worked out to signify, but it was all subliminal. I wouldn't expect people to kind of note those things, but just as a just a summing to. You know, sort of carry the shape in your head as you're filming it. Because, of course, when you film anything, really, these days, it's all out of sequence. And it depends on when you've got that location or when you've got that actor. You have to do things out of sequence. And I think it helped Dev, because, of course, Dev Patel is in practically every scene all the way through. So he's filming it all out of sequence. So I think for him to have a kind of an emotional structure in his head so he knew where he was in each moment in the film. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And you guys, when you talk about the process of adapting it, I think you guys did a whole bunch of different versions. Like I think you said you did one version with only Dickens' dialogue and just yes. that writing and writing and writing. Is that usually your process or was adapting something this massive different?
1: Well, uh, again, you know, I'm not, I never thought of myself as someone who, normally I generate my own stories and I do my own projects. And my first film, In the Loop, was, was based on that. I didn't think my next two films would be adaptations of other material. And what I like about adapting is I'm always trying to remember what it was that inspired me in the original. How do we try and capture the essence of that? You know, don't just take the story. What is it about this thing that you admire that makes you want to say people ought to look at this? And as I said, it's about the playfulness, the imagination, the characters. Uh, And and just as a test to ourselves, Simon Blackwell, co-writer of the script, wrote a version that was just the dialogue from the film, and it was about 170 pages long. (laughs) And it was an interesting read, but it wasn't a film. It was a sequence of events, and it was a developing story, you know, because it's a novel. But it then told us what we now needed to do, which was to be brave, take bits out, change things, push things together, take a scene there, but put it there now, so that there's more of a cinematic rhythm to it. You know, Mm -hmm. everything is evolving and pushing towards a finale, and 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 the themes start to kind of circle and you, you grow familiar with people. And I, in the book, you know, big characters like Mr. McCorber and and Aunt Betsy and so on, they disappear for like 300 pages. Yeah. And, but in a film, you can't have that. You've got to, especially if you've got people as talented as Tilda Swinton and yeah. Peter Capaldi. So you, you want them up there. kind of, you don't, and you know, Mr. Dick, wonderful Hugh Laurie's performance, Mr. Dick is amazing. You know, so it was about rewriting it, but tr- still trying to stay true to the essence of the book. And it was very—I I felt very kind of um, gratified when I met members of the Dickens family, and they said they really enjoyed it. They—they they said that it caught the essence of their great, 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 great grandfather's book, and they were—they were very happy with it.
0: Are they typically protective over people kind of fiddling with the stories? Well,
1: I, it's so public. You know, the the stories now are out of copyright and people, uh, you know, I think think they just kind of enjoy being part of that kind of heritage, really. Yeah. Uh, But they're very much aware of of what's going on and what adaptations are out there. and so.
0: I find it such a bummer when, you know, a comic book gets adapted or or the Harry Potter films or something, everyone's like, well, this was different in the book and they get upset about it. It's just not, it's not interesting, I think, if you're just doing something slavishly.
1: I keep saying... You don't have to pass an exam to go and see the film. You know, I'm not <laughs> anyone watching it to know the book, to have heard of the book, to have read the book. It helps if you know it's not about the magician.
0: Uh, <laughs> Maybe it's a pleasant surprise.
1: <laughs> I'm still getting tweets from people saying, it was about an hour into the film and then I realised it wasn't about the magician. I thought, an hour? Maybe you, they weren't you know, paying much attention. <laughs> what were you thinking during the first hour? <laughs> um, <laughs> but there you go.
0: <laughs> yeah. You've, you've talked about, I mean, you've been a fan of Dickens for a long time and yes. not just because of his writing, but because of, it, of his Britishness and because of the way that it made you feel about being British, which I really like. As an American, I think we think of patriotism as being complicated and I think is really different from British patriotism. Yeah. And what is it about Dickens that for you just sums up being proud to be from Britain?
1: Well, actually, patriotism in Britain is dif- is difficult as well, because actually it's become... Slightly um, adopted by the right and the mm. extreme right. You know, Same if you here, yeah. Wave and Union Jack flag, you know, people think. And, and, and I sort of wanted to do the film because, especially after the Brexit vote, there was a danger that people saw Britain as being a very inward, insular, isolationist country. And in fact, we're not. You know, we are a multi ethnic, diverse, generous, outgoing humorous, creative country. Uh, and I kind of wanted to celebrate that. That's the Britain I understand, and that's the Britain I see around me. And I think that can be forgotten under the the, the sort of the language and the political debate that's been going on over the last three or four years. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, as a child of Italian immigrants, you know, I grew up rather like David. I grew up, and Dev had, and I had this conversation. You grew up thinking, are you... Fully British, or are you partly British? Are you inside, outside? Where do you belong? And and the answer is both. You know, you you're fully part of the country, but at the same time, you have this other heritage as well that allows you to slightly step outside it and view it slightly more objectively at times.
0: Yeah, and there and there's kind of no greater way to say you are part of this country than casting someone as David Copperfield, like you know one of the top ten iconic British characters. Like,
1: yes, that is yes.
0: being in the in the firmament in that way.
1: Yes. Yes, and and it, and Dev was the only person I could think of to play David. I he's amazing in this movie. He's, he's amazing, and he, you know, he's got to do awkwardness, tenderness, drama, comedy, um, physical comedy, mimicry. He's got to fight. He's got to, you know, he's, he's got to have all this. He's got to be the hero. He's got to be charismatic. He's got to be um, sorrowful, and all the, you know, and as I say, he's in it practically every scene, and I, I really couldn't think of anyone else who could it off really. And and then when I saw him grown up in lion, yeah. and be very strong and powerful, that was the moment I thought, ah, that's that's David, because I've now seen the whole, you know, not just the growing up, but the kind of the the maturity, the growth, you know, the strength. Yeah.
0: There's something so powerful about seeing an actor when they start young, you know, and being yeah. a child actor seems like a tough way to live sometimes. But when you watch someone like Dev Patel grow up and grow into this leading man status, yeah. it's, a, it's wonderful. He's Dan
1: Radcliffe, and, and he's a yeah. funny actor, actually. I think he's a really funny kind of uh, screen presence. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean,
0: the physical comedy in this movie. And the, I mean, Tilda Swinton has done physical comedy before, yes. too, but there's something about yeah. her chasing donkeys it brings that out. And you know, you've got yes. people who are coming from all these different schools of acting and schools of comedy, right. and then you throw yeah. them all into a room together. And uh, the contrast. Which is something
1: of- we did in The Death of Stalin as well. Yeah. We had Stephen Chamey with Michael Palin, you know, Paul Whitehouse, who's a kind of TV comic star in the UK, but not, not, not you know, all, I like getting people together from different performing backgrounds. Because then you have an ensemble that, although it's an ensemble, it's full of individual voices. Yeah. So not everyone performing to the one style.
0: I had this thought toward the end where um, they have the big scene where they confront Uriah Heep and everyone's in there. Yes. And then literally David's writing it and um, yes. Doris says she yes. wasn't there. And it does seem like you, in particular, love getting eight or 10 people in a room to kind of yes, duke it I'm out. I'm that happens it. in your work a lot.
1: You know, they're always hard work to shoot because you're sort of spinning all these plates, but they're all very satisfying. I mean, that scene in particular, we spent all day at it, bit by bit by bit. And by about three o'clock, you know, we had a few more hours left, but we'd shot every line, every way. And then I said, okay, we're just going to pull the cameras right back. We're going to shoot the whole thing from beginning to end. So like a stage Mm -hmm. production. And and we did it and then we reversed it again. And that gives all the cast that chance to, you know, explore the rhythm of the whole scene, know when to speed up, when to slow down and when to when it's reaching ahead and so on. And they love it because by then they feel they've rehearsed it and rehearsed it and now they can do it live almost, you know.
0: Yeah. And does that leave room for for improvisation in a scene like that or is it just too complicated?
1: (laughs) Well, it's a little bit. But of course, when you've got about 10 people in the room, they can't all be throwing ideas in simultaneously because it just gets a noise but i think it just gives a people aren't afraid to slightly come in at the end of other lines Mm-hmm. So it's got that natural rhythm of, of speech. Really.
0: Yeah. Um, I know that there are well-paid professionals who do this, so if you had nothing to do with it, that's okay. But the hair in this movie just really is special yes. from beginning to end, from like Dev's hair to like Ben Wishaw's awful bowl cut. like <laughs> but
1: what we did was we went back and dug out photos because of the early days of photography, black and white photography, the 1830s and 40s. And the hair is mad. And I think it's because people needed to demonstrate their own identity. So they made hmm. something idiosyncratic with their. The women had these curls that just went everywhere. And the men sort of sculpted their hair in these strange kind of shapes. And their waistcoats were all bright colours and lots of loud patterns. And they wanted to make a splash. So this idea we have of the Victorian times being very dowdy and being, is I think actually something that's almost like the Hollywood version. And in fact, Mm -hmm. the reality of of it was, it was, you know, I I kept saying to the cast, you know, you're in the present, you know, London in the 1840s should feel like Manhattan. You know, it's the center of the world. It's the industrial revolution. You can make your fortune here. Um, It's exciting, it's big. Things are being constructed, you know, the Houses of Parliament are being built and, and, and all these things. So I wanted to explore that freshness and, and you know, modernity.
0: Yeah. Well, th- so I saw this last fall and then a couple months later, Little Women came out and Greta Gerwig had the same thing oh, about yeah. how she made that. She was like, for for the people in this movie, this is their present, which yes. seems like a simple thought, but I feel like so often that doesn't come up with people. And it feels like it's changing, like the way that people are thinking of period films is, is starting to change in that way. I
1: know. It's funny. It's, something happens to you when you put on a an old hat or a, a big guy, uh, suddenly your voice, you start <laughs> and talk like this as if people talk like this. Sir. Yeah. You, no, nobody talked like that. Yeah. <laughs> we don't really know what they talk like. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I, it just felt that, you know, let's, and again, I didn't want it, I didn't want people watching it to feel detached from it, you know, mm-hmm. as if they're watching a period piece. I wanted it to feel like it was happening now in front of their audience.
0: And you took rehearsal time, too, with the actors to kind of yes. get that down before, before filming, right? Like, what is the, what's the process of just making people feel like themselves when they put that stuff on?
1: Yeah, well, it's about getting everyone – as I said, you know, we shoot out of order. So the only time we can do it in order is if we sat in a, a church hall for two weeks and just worked through it in the right way around. And and give us time to, and it gives everyone time to know each other, but to play around. So there's a scene in the film where they try and hide a globe of drinks
0: from mm-hmm. Mr. Wickfield.
1: Yeah. And, and we just worked that out in a day in the church hall, just trying to hide it behind people, people crossing over and swapping it and him trying to get it. You know, that was a day of of just having a bit of fun. In the, And then we, so it is like rehearsing a play, actually. Yeah. It, have that feel of it. We spent two weeks rehearsing, then we went out and did it. Mm.
0: That Globe of Drinks is one of the things I wondered if it came from Dickens, because I know you've talked about how funny Dickens was, but that, it seemed like such a it big, a, visi- a visual a put- audio joke, not a yes, book joke.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, some of the lines that people think we put in, I say, no, it, that's in the book. That line, that funny line is in the book. And yeah.
0: anyone that comes up over and over again?
1: Well, that, when Dora is saying... Yeah, you know, I want to be useful. Can I hold your pens? And then just uh, <laughs> let me know when you need a new pen. Yes. Oh, that's, that's the book.
0: <laughs> I mean, like the names a lot. Like, even if you don't know a lot about Dickens, if you know like the name like Fagin or something like that, you know how yeah. clever he was. And it, that feels like some this lasting legacy that he has. That 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 sense Absolutely. of humor is Uriah there. Absolutely,
1: Uriah Everyone kind of has heard the phrase Uriah Heep. You don't quite know what it. You know, people might not quite know who Uriah Heep is, but they're aware of the phrase. That is Dickens. He's sort of part of the furniture. You know, he is, people think they know him. And yet I think the perception still is that he's this slightly long-winded novelist who wrote about mud and fog and child labor and so on. (laughs) Which he did Which he did But also He's really really funny Really funny
0: It's funny you say Part of the furniture Which is a line From the musical Oliver Which I know by heart Because (laughs) from getting to know you It's
1: just That's part
0: of my brain For the rest of my life Right yeah Um, Looking forward a little bit as you're going back into work on Avenue 5, like, you know, yeah. scenes like the ones in this movie where everyone's standing in the room yelling at each other, it just feels like science fiction right now, like the idea that we'll ever get back to that. How are you feeling just about the idea of movies continuing, or I mean, or theater for that matter? Like, are you, are you optimistic at all for how we get out of this?
1: It's scary. I think it'll take a while. And I think we need to go through the process of, unfortunately, maybe we'll end up going through the process of missing it before we get it back. Yeah. You know, I, I feel. Bad for especially the independent cinemas, the small theatres. I feel bad for them if inevitably they close because at some point in three years' time, people will say, It'd Be a good idea to have a theatre here, It'd be a good idea to have an independent cinema here, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, and so I think, you know, long term, I think it'll all come back. I think also cinemas may have to work on sort of redefining themselves that we've now got so used to staying in and watching it in. Why should we go out? Well, we should go out because you're going to get a meal as well as the mm-hmm. film, You're going to maybe get a talk or, a, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a festival of the same director on, or, uh, you know, I think rather like bookshops have had to be kind of inventive yeah. about themselves, you know, um, it makes it harder, I'm sure, you know, but, um, I think there is a yearning. Surely after this year, people will want to go out (laughs) and meet other people and watch things live and, you know, music. People will want to go out and watch live, you know. Yeah. It's what sustained us through this indoors, you know. So you will want to go out and... It's just when do we feel safe to do it? Yeah. And hopefully vaccines and so on. I mean,
0: watching this movie again and remembering seeing it at the premiere in Toronto, which like the audiences in Toronto just are usually the best you ever see a movie with. The responses in a movie like this, it has so much communication with it. It just, it's a really different experience. And it made me realize that like, I very much value being able to watch it in my house. But like, I want to go, I want to hear an audience like gasp at something again. Well,
1: you know, I, I've always, that's why I've started doing movies because I love going to the theatre and being in that communal especially when it's comedy, you know, being in a room with everyone laughing.
0: Yeah.
1: I think it's so much more um you get so much more out of it than just laughing at a screen yeah. on your own, you know. <laughs>
0: That does it for this week's episode. Again, if you are in the United States, have a great and safe Thanksgiving. We'll be back next week. Uh, As we said, you can find us on VanityFair.com. You can find Anthony and Joanna's terrific piece about the uh, troubles in the Star Wars galaxy and um, lots of other things there. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter at Men and on our own, Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Anthony.
2: At Bresnikan.
0: And me, I usually go first. I went last. I'm I know. Katie Rich. this <laughs> is just really throwing us off our game. Um, this episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for how we all hope your Thanksgiving goes goes to Joanna Robinson.
3: Kind of toxic in a fun <laughs> way.